Welcome to Downstage Center, a production of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today, our first annual Downstage Center Halloween extravaganza, quite appropriately. <laughs> quite We're all in costumes. We're yeah. <laughs> not going to tell you. You have to guess. <laughs> when you think of Halloween, you think naturally of Dracula. We have the two stars of Dracula, Tom Hewitt, who of course plays Dracula on Broadway, and Melissa Errico, who plays, I guess, Dracula's main bite, I guess you could say, yeah. <laughs> Mina Murray. It's more than a main the squeeze. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of dessert. That's right. <laughs> Welcome to Downstage Center. <laughs> You both have extensive Broadway and traveling company and even television experience. Tom, of course, getting a Tony nomination for Frankenfurter in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And uh, also in other credits, boys from Syracuse, Art, The Lion King, The Sisters Rosenzweig, all of that on Broadway. Melissa, of course, a Tony nomination as Best Leading Actress in a Musical for Amour, also starring in High Society, Revival of My Fair Lady, Anna Karenina. Welcome to Downstage Center. Thanks. Thanks for Thank having us. Thank you. Now you're in Dracula, the musical. Dracula, the musical. <laughs> and we ran a big promotion back in August. Everybody already knows about Dracula, the musical. But it must be quite fun playing a role that's really over the top like Dracula. It is, you know, and especially one that's so iconic and one that I have loved since being, a, you know, a preteen. I was uh, fixated with, you know, Fangora magazine and the Universal Monsters and all that kind of stuff. So, you really? Oh, I loved it. My, my bedroom was just plastered with, with uh-huh. pictures of, uh, you know, Wolfman, Mummy. And wow. of course, and I of had course, Lionel uh, Richie on my walls. <laughs> that's, that's kind of the same. <laughs> that tells us a great deal. Carry on. Carry on. <laughs> um, so, uh, the, you know, the, the adolescent boy in me couldn't be more thrilled. <laughs> but how, how do you deal with a role? I mean, it's, it's certainly a role that has been played countless times, not obviously in this version, but – you know, just countless versions. And if, as you say, as a kid, you were you were watching these movies, or if you were allowed to watch them, if they didn't keep you up at night, um, do you choose from among the various ways you've seen Dracula portrayed? How much? How did when, when you started in on this? What did Des Mackinoff had to say, have to say? What did Frank Wildhorn have to say about how how they saw Dracula for this production? Yes. Well, you know, there's a wealth. There's a, a absolute wealth of material. It seems like you can't turn on the television or, uh, you know, go to the cinema without seeing some sort of vampire-related material of some kind. It's so, so part of our, our popular culture. So uh, deciding the behavior for Dracula in this particular production was a little bit of a challenge. And, uh, you know, what <laughs> What are the ground rules? You know, how? what are the ground rules for uh, vampire behavior? Uh, we presume you've never been undead, so not that I recall. Don't be ready. Although exactly, there were the late seventies, though. Anyway, that's another interview. Uh, so uh, we early on in rehearsals, uh, Des Des sort of turned me loose. You know, in the first third of the novel, anyway, Dracula's very old and he um, gains youth through uh, after biting um, several people. He sort of uh, regains his youth, but early in the novel, he's he's ancient. He's four hundred years old and and looks it. So uh, we had a lot of fun experimenting with qualities of movement and qualities of behavior in La Jolla, and I like totally kabukied out. You know uh, what 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 uh, animates the vampire? You know, certainly not the life force as we know it. So we experimented with you know sort of limbs moving on their own or inappropriately or, you know, things like that. And it was so much fun to to sort of go there and to take it to the extremes. But eventually uh, Des uh, brought it to my attention that we needed to incorporate some some recognizable human behavior, uh, mostly because Dracula in the second half uh, 
is more, he gains more human attributes. We, we've uh, sort of developed a Dracula with, with some remorse and some romanticism. So to have such an extreme character early on in the show made it almost impossible to make the second half of the show um, viable. So, um, and what about the voice? I mean, did you actually go to a dialect consultant for what would be a Transylvanian accent? Or Yes, we've worked with several several uh and i've listened to recordings of actual uh R- romanian we stick mostly with with romanian uh the words that we speak in the text are are archaic i suppose similar to shakespearean english uh, in regards to romanian so the words that we use are are uh, aren't rec- you know aren't often used in in contemporary romanian but we didn't work with with uh with dialect coaches but you know what's interesting? You don't really play the show f- for camp. It's not like you know somebody doing an impersonation. I want to drink your blood. It's not right. that kind of a show. Everybody in the show is believable as a human being. Even Dracula at some points is believable as a human. Yet you transcend that and make Dracula the the legendary Dracula. So it's very interesting that you know you, you basically play it straight. Well, I, I like to think that I give the audience a lot an opportunity to um, to sort of invest their uh, sensibilities of what Dracula is. Um, it, it, which is scary. That's it, that was the scariest thing to do. Uh, to do nothing, you know, to just sort of show up. Des would often use the phrase "the court makes the king," so I rely on Melissa to do a lot of the acting for me. I show up in fabulous lighting and uh, great costume, and you know, on some sort of contraption, and everybody reacts to me. I just sort of get to show up, and the audience gets to fill in the blanks, you know, via my minimalist performance. Of course, the scary thing is for an actor, you know, you want to: uh, Am I boring? Am I not doing anything? I'm not sweaty and out of breath. And Melissa, the first time, (laughs) how do you react the first time the guy goes for your neck? How do I react? I mean, just how was that first rehearsal? I mean, it is kind of that great. I think I did have the giggles the first time. It was weird. weird. It was strange. And he had done it in La Jolla, so he'd bitten a few other gals, you know. So, Um, (laughs) so he'd been around. He'd been around, you know, the block. Um, But you know, I. I guess I'm. I also encouraged um, some of the interpretation to go in that way of the romantic. I mean, it is written that way. There is the sense that these two people were always meant to um, come together, despite the fact that it is a legendary monster. Um, there is a very human aspect to the script that these two people are are um, magnetized to each other over as if through the centuries they've always known they were going to end up together. So there is this great love story. And so even when we got to the bite, I'm a real romantic. I you know, was a medieval studies major in college, and I grew up as a kid reading Goethe and wanting to kill myself. And I sat on the <laughs> roof and, you know, looked out at, the, well, my little world in Long Island and just, you know, lit candles. And I mean, my whole sensibility is sort of perfect for this gothic musical. And so when Tom goes to bite me, I'm not really quick to, like, think it's ridiculous or just laugh and think, oh, this is some stupid show. I mean, yeah. I'm actually, like, really into it. I think it's really sexual and sexy and daring, you know, for two people to kind of want to possess each other that way and Well, and that, that, that's connect. an aspect of Dracula which I think emerges in the show that maybe hasn't been there in other versions because Dracula, as played years ago by, was it Bela Lugosi or whoever? It yeah. was kind of like a real 
ugh, kind of freak. Like a freak, yeah, yeah, not, yeah. not a very good-looking guy. Now, a walking have, dead, yeah. Uh, sorry to embarrass you, Tom, but a really good-looking matinee idol type of dragon. I mean, he's oh, kind wow. of a kind of kind of a sex uh, go on. Right. Well, Gary yeah. yeah. Oldman did that, yeah. right, in the movie. Well, and, and of course, the big guy. reinvention was when Frank Langella did the play mm-hmm. on Broadway. Now, almost thirty years ago, that was that it was really because even if you go to Christopher Lee or Peter Cushing in the Hammer films in the fifties, they weren't really good-looking guys. But but right. Langella, that was kind of. The great, the, the big reinvention, and then once again, when Francis Ford Coppola took him on with Gary Oldman in uh, in the film in the early nineties, the Nosferatu one that I always like, that one with Isabel Adjani, mm-hmm. um, that's and beautiful. Klaus but Kinski. he is, yeah, he's really not a good-looking guy. I mean, he's actually the, one of the grossest Draculas I can imagine there ever being. He's bald with those weird teeth and the whole thing. But there's actually a very romantic finale, end to that. Where mm. – um, do you remember that? It's the, so sexy. Yeah. She's lying there and she knows that if the sun rises and he's still um, not in his coffin, he will he will die. And so he bites her neck and it's still night and, uh, and he's sa- you know, sated, satiated? Same. Same? <laughs> You're both, good. Both, You're words, good. both yeah. words will he's do. Full. Yeah. He's full. He's <laughs> full. But out. both words will do, right? Yeah. Sated and satiated. Okay. So when he's both of those things, he, um, <laughs> you know, he, he removes himself. He pulls away from her and she looks and sees it's still not morning and she pulls his head back to her body and then he pulls away and it's still not dawn and it goes on and on until she's nearly dead. And it's like right. this, like, it's like right. having sex until you're dead. You know what I mean? And she's literally, I think she's pretty close to dead. Maybe she's dead at the end. And the sun rises and she keeps pulling him back to her. Because, right. you know, so it's it's actually this really weird, you know, that's kind of romantic. But again, the the portrayal isn't like the Frank Langella or anything where the man is attractive and so on. But there is a kind of sick romanticism even in the spookiest versions. Well, what did Frank Wildhorn talk to you about in terms of those very early rehearsals? What was he going for? Was there some element of the story that he was particularly trying to illuminate in a different way? I know there was a lot of talk about that this piece actually went back closer to the original novel. But... In plot, it did, yeah. yeah. Yes, it did, uh, except for the romantic element and the ending of the show. You know, uh, Stoker's novel, there, Dracula is not in the least bit attractive. He is uh, uh, grotesque and and scary throughout. We have incorporated the romance. We've, uh, that, that is an, an, an addition to uh, Mr. Stoker's novel, and I think Frank's music uh, reflects that, you know, that aspect of it. Well, there's one Frank's ter- romantic too. There's one very it. romantic song. I mean, he song, loves corsets and the whole very thing. Very romantic song. Since we're talking about romance, which you sing, mm-hmm. Melissa, in the show, mm-hmm. and uh, the heart is slow to learn. Ah. How, how, how does that work in the show? Well, it's um, it's at the moment when uh, it's the top of the second act. Lucy has just been. Um, uh, killed. Lucy's my best friend. She's been killed because she's come back to life as the undead, and she's been killed. And this is when Mina is starting to realize that there are forces at work, um, not only on her friend but on herself, and that it's inescapable. And even though she knows this is this is not going to end well, she can feel these um, this pull to uh, a forbidden sort of a lust in herself. So she feels this kind of inevitable um, changes happening in herself. So why don't we play that and we'll come. Talk more about the show. Sure. That, of course, was Melissa Errico, The Heart is Slow to Learn, Frank Wildhorn's song from Dracula, the musical. Tom, this show for you is a very kind of a physical show without giving anything away about what happens. You fly around a lot. You disappear. You pop up and pop down and pop everywhere. That's 
kind of quite a physical challenge for you, I guess, isn't well, it? Well, it appears to be, but oh. it's not at all. Uh-huh. Uh, that's not to say that it wasn't without some stressful moments. Uh-huh. Um, I certainly do some things in the show that I have never <laughs> done before in my life. My relationship with gravity is very intense uh, in, in the show. But as far as any sort of physical exertion, it's one of the easiest shows I've ever done because I rarely walk on the stage. I'm riding something on. Or off, it so kind of float on, float off. Exactly, but I've never, also never been in a show where I've had to concentrate more um, for for safety reasons. But also, it's it's the singiest show I have ever been in, and singing on the stage is for me an enormously difficult thing. I know that Melissa could probably attest to the fact that <laughs> in scenes with her, I'm sure she's seen my eyes glaze over many times as I try to find the way to place that. No, what's that note that I got to sing? <laughs> so my concentration really sort of goes more towards but, the musicality of the show. Often. But you've been to musicals before. You know, that's sort of a recent uh, cur- yeah, and, and very that- unexpected expected career change. How did that come about? Because I've known you as as a great classical actor regionally around the country for years. Right, I was and t- it seems in the past couple of years between Dracula, Rocky Horror, National Tour of Urinetown, suddenly you're, you're Mr. Musical Comedy. Totally. And I can't be more delighted in my middle age to have such a, <laughs> you know, kind of a career change. I, I, I've always been interested in musicals and I always felt that I could sing pretty good for an actor. But I knew that that I would never be in a musical until it, there was a, a role that was appropriate for me that was more you know Rex Harrisony talky sort of thing and um, I, I for years had had just a, like Rocky Horror which has exactly. that, that Rex Harrison tone to it but more like <laughs> actually the same initials R H there you go. Hmm, Connection the, there. Uh, I was actually referring more to the, the Lion King, where Scar is is maybe more you know Cyril Richardi. It's mm-hmm. not the, the m- uh, musicality of the character is not all that important. And fortunately, I had a relationship with Julie Taymor and was allowed to be in the Lion King for a couple of years, and that changed everything. Uh, since so, since nineteen ninety eight, I've been I've only done musicals ex- except for one play at uh, the Globe Theater without. And but you, met, was, you met Julie in Japan. I met her in Japan via the in the context of avant-garde Japanese. <laughs> this was when you were working with a Suzuki, Suzuki company. Suzuki company, yeah, yeah. She brought King, uh, King Stag to Mr. Suzuki. Tell people festival. what that is, just so they 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 get a perspective of where you've come from to be in all these major musicals. Uh, I'll try to make it brief. Mr. Suzuki uh, is uh, a fairly well-known uh, director who has his own company in Japan, the Suzuki Company of Toga. The company used to be called the Waseda Shogekijo or Waseda Little Theater. Uh, it was formed in the 60s at, at Waseda University. Mr. Suzuki is often referred to as the Grotowski of Japan. His uh, uh, training method and his, his aesthetics are very grounded in physical movement. He has his own physical training method that deal a lot with the feet and the legs and that um, the feet and legs uh, and their connection with the earth are more as important as any other part of the body. They are as expressive as the face. So, um, uh, let's see, 1980, he and his company came to our school and uh, taught a workshop, and my relationship with him developed then. And uh, as part of our uh, his his workshop with us, we did scenes from Trojan Women with his leading actress. She spoke Japanese and we spoke English. And Mr. Suzuki, we thought it would be interesting to try a fully mounted production using uh, a, a bilingual production. So myself and the late Larry Shu, uh, who was in Milwaukee at the time, and uh, another student, we went and uh, to Mr. Suzuki's compound in a small mountain village in Japan and studied for several weeks. 
and uh, did a, a fully mounted production of The Bacchae and, you know, performed that off and on for several years. And my relationship with him continued for about 12 years. I've done maybe four productions and performed at international theater festivals, always speaking English in, in with, with his Japanese And company. in fact, he'd be aghast to see you being glided on and off the stage without using your feet or legs you know anchored what? to the ground. Maybe, perhaps he would, <laughs> although he did. God bless him. He came to see the Rocky Horror Show and he loved it. I, in many interviews, I would talk about how I was – this is the first time that I was really using the logistics in a, in a very visceral way using Mr. Suzuki's training because of – basically because of the platform high heels. I had to concentrate on my feet and legs and I was so <laughs> used to concentrating in that way that it was almost made it easier to walk in those heels because I was so used to thinking about my feet and legs and he was very proud that I – that I was able to, <laughs> to change the context of the training to serve that show. So. Now, Tom, you've had kind of an interesting way of getting into musical, but Melissa, you studied at Yale. You studied theater, I guess, wasn't it? No, actually, I didn't. No. I was a medieval studies a medieval. major at Yale. But I was, I mean, my musical theater um, training starts from the day I first saw a musical. I mean, I have literally the starry-eyed story. I mean, I saw On Your Toes. I saw On Your Toes. I was 11 years old. I was sobbing. I couldn't look at the stage. My parents thought I was, like, sick or something. And I was like, this is the most beautiful thing I ever saw in my life. Who are these people? I was overwhelmed. And I I literally couldn't. I recall crying so hard I had to keep looking down. I just couldn't even. I didn't know who these people were. I mean, I was so overwhelmed. I thought it was so beautiful. This is the 83 production on Broadway with Natalia Makarova and Lara Teeter. Right. That you'd seen. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, one decade later when I was 21, I was starring in that theater in My Fair Lady. And Mm. the crew had heard that story. And one day they filled my dressing room with all the marquee photos of On Your Toes that they'd found in the basement. (laughs) So there was Lara Teeter and and Christine Andreas and um, Natalia Makarova and, uh, you know, all maybe eight eight feet high, all around the tiniest little room. And uh, it was so thrilling. So the crew, you know, recaptured that feeling for me. And there even was a huge argument that night with my parents because I normally don't ask for, you know, treats and things like too too often, especially being taken to the city from Long Island to see a musical. But that night I wanted the um, program. I wanted the the souvenir book and the tote bag. The On Your Toes tote bag. And my father said the tote bag was way over the top. And we had this enormous fight about the tote bag. And not that long ago, my sister, who's um, uh, 22 and is a uh, aspiring fashion designer, she reconstructed the bag, which was in shambles, and gave it to me as a gift, perfectly clean. So On Your Toes everyone in the family knows, was almost like a conversion, like a religious thing. I mean, I literally love musicals, and I never looked back. I mean, by 18, I was in Les Mis. I was auditioning for things out of backstage, cattle calls. I was hanging around the equity building. I was lying and cheating to get into everything, to, you know, to get into, like, an equity call when I was just equity eligible. Remember all those rules? And, you know, like, I'd be like, but I'm really 18, and I'm not 16. And, you know, like, anything it took to, if I was too young for something. I mean, I, I laughed. I laughed my way through the whole thing too because it was such a zoo at the time you know like 1515 Broadway was this place where everything was auditioning and the Alvin Ailey company would be rehearsing and Starlight Express would be you know holding its first auditions Les Mis I went to the original auditions of Les Mis when I was just a a tot you know and anyway it's all a blur now but I really pursued this in a a very haphazard way but I was I was going to get in somehow and if I just I don't know 
It's like I'd rather be a, a lamppost in New York than the mayor of Chicago. But then when you went off to college, though, you didn't study it then. Well, why? well by then I'd already toured Les Mis for two years. Uh-huh. When I, um, I went back to Yale, I actually had to defer going to college. Um, I was uh, be, just before going to college, I um, snuck out of the uh, house, you know, on the usual. I used to sneak often onto the Long Island Railroad. Mm-hmm. Um, that was like, you know, the road to Mecca for me. L I R R. So I'd get on that train and go into the city. You know, sometimes I'd get the bus to drop me off at the station, and I could still get back and like by six twenty and tell my mother I'd been to soccer practice. <laughs> I mean, I had the whole thing down because there was a late bus from Friends Academy. I mean, I don't want you to think that I'm like deceitful, but I would do anything to be in a musical, including risk my parents. You know, you know, wanting to put me in in like an institution. But um, so. I was auditioning on the sly for summer theater um, just before college and uh, uh, for Rhode Island Theater by the Sea. So it was in the middle of the summer, late summer, for the final production of George M. And uh, I also had an audition booked for later that week for the Ringling Brothers Circus, (laughs) which I was absolutely willing to join the circus other than go to college. I mean, I never I was going to ride an elephant. Usually people at this are audition. younger when they're ready to run away and join the circus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was considering running away too at different times. What, what would you have done in the circus? Trapeze ride or? an elephant. I had oh. to balance on an elephant, which I was pretty certain I could do. Um, <laughs> and I practice at home, but been to just... theater camp. Yeah. But let me ask so you, I was very some. curious as I was reading up on you. Whenever I hear people speak of you as a performer, they immediately speak about your extraordinary voice. And it struck me when you talk about On Your Toes, which was a big dance show, and you were doing a lot of dancing. You were involved in, in the American Dance Machine. Yeah, when, I was started. Be- I sort of started that way as a dancer. Is that where that? Yeah, sorry, I'm I'm just, to- I was just curious because, as I said, people think about the voice and not. I know not that's the dancing. kind of strange because I was in tap shoes when Vinnie Liff. I was auditioning for George M that very day, and. That's when Vinnie Lift saw me through the window, and I was in shorts, tap shoes, and had this huge head of hair, and you know, auditioning for the Bernadette role. And uh, and uh, Vinnie Lift, the casting director of Les Mis, saw me through the window. And the people from Rhode Island Theater by the Sea are still kind of acquaintances, and they've come to shows, and they always allude to that day. They say, "Oh, we knew we were going to lose you." Vinnie knocked on the door and said, "When you're done with that young lady, could we see her, Cosette?" And they knew I was going to be snatched up by Les Mis or something in the air that day. And I I went in and I auditioned for um, everyone was there, Bob Billig and the whole creative team. And they said, can you start in 10 days? And that meant I had to pull out of college and the whole thing. I had to call my parents and be like, I just got the lead in Les Mis. It was such a mess. I had to be so crafty, too, to, like, get my parents to let me do that. And I promised I'd go back to college. That was the main thing. And I did. So, so, the, so the- my dance career ended abruptly because of Les Mis. Really. But other choreographers have spotted it. Lara Lubavitch and High Society and um, Wayne Salento picked up on it. Um, Jerry Mitchell. There are some choreographers out there who have done a couple of, you know, auditions or or have worked with me on projects and seen seen it. It's kind of just like latently sitting there. I, I can still dance, in other words, I think. I mean, I'm getting older now. I better keep moving. In my mind, I can do all these fabulous things. I'm going to fall on my head someday and be like, I guess not. <laughs> I used to be able to spin. <laughs> Did, are, you, are you still taking class? Huh? I'm you not take, taking class. class. No, I don't take class. That's that's what I mean. That's why I think I better do it. I'm, I stay in shape, though. I do Pilates, you know. Uh-huh. And so I'm always around the dancers and the turnout. and the. So I still have the uh, placement, the fitness, the stomach, you know, the whatever. But... Um, I, uh, I I think I'm like quite slow, maybe remembering routines now, things like that. But I think after this interview, I'll 
I should I, we'll, we'll you send you right back yeah, to the bar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It got me nervous now. So all those days of sneaking off on the Long Island Railroad paid off. What, what did your yeah, parents think? Yeah, what a crazy think? story. I told you. You know what? They loved it because my, both my parents are Italian and frustrated artists. They did not have money. They grew up. They're first-generation Italians. My father wanted to be a concert pianist. My mother's mother came to New York to be an opera singer, and her sister um, and her worked in a factory sewing sequins on and uh, being hat girls at a hotel. Ziegfeld spotted my mother, my grandmother's sister. She became one of Ziegfeld's favorite dancers. And uh, my grandmother continued to train in opera in New York, and then she met my grandfather, also uh, uh, an Italian man, um, you know, first not, – not even first generation, just Italian, just moved to Brooklyn – and uh, they were adults when they met. And he became very jealous of her and of her voice. And he didn't want her to sing anymore. So he pulled her off the stage. And she did concerts in her in her brownstone in Brooklyn my whole life. So when my mother met my father, who's a piano player, um, my grandmother used to sing Puccini and everything with my father. And my dad learned Tosca, learned everything. And my grandmother could sing. So there's so much talent that never got out of the, you know, beyond the home in my family's history. So other than my Aunt Rose, who was always considered kind of a loose cannon. You know, she had a lot of husbands and, you know, for coats. And, and I, I, so, yeah. you know, I'm trying to do it the honorable way. I'm sort of married and kind of fairly <laughs> boring and, and, and performing. So my parents sort of applauded, even though I had to, I had to deal with all the kind of moral elements. I'm, I was young. I was on the train. I was, you know, it sort of looked risque to be, you know, stealing off into the city. So, so, so you do have some sort of showbiz roots. So to speak, I they're mean, there. They're like yeah. frustrated yeah. showbiz frustrated. roots. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like... How about you, Tom? Any showbiz heritage in your family? None, none you, at all. You, you were the first, I believe. So, my my younger brother is a drummer in a rock and roll band in the uh, uh-huh. um, Fargo Moorhead uh, area. But no, I, I'm from from Montana, where showbiz uh-huh. was like the furthest thing from anybody's <laughs> mind. There's no train to Broadway. There's no train to Broadway. Well, there's there's, <laughs> there's, there's, there's Amtrak. You can take that. Yeah. <laughs> I guess you can, can. Like, but not to be home in time for dinner. <laughs> yeah, you can't sneak around. <sighs> but in going into musicals, I mean, as Melissa's been doing this now for years and years and years. Have you gone and and done any training? Have you done dance training? Have you gone for voice training? Have you have you tried to work on developing that or? You're just doing it. I'm still sort of in denial. I think it's kind of a fluke, and it's going to end at any minute. So, you know, I, I, I really haven't. As far as vocal training goes, we are uh, musical director Constantine Katsopoulos has been remarkable with me. Both he and Frank have, you know, coached me specifically f- for the show. But, you know, t- time is is often a f- uh, it's hard to, to squeeze it in during the day. And you're also dealing with other people's sensibilities, I think, when you work with, with vocal coaches and stuff. So I'm really trying to stick with what, what I'm learning with, with with this show, but eventually, I suppose I'm going to have to take some kind of responsibility mm-hmm. for for the gift. Tell us about, about <laughs> Rocky Horror Show. How did that come about, and how did you get into that, and what did you think of it when they cast you and all that? This is, a, I think, a very a typical story. I think a lot of actors would identify with this. At, I auditioned for the Rocky. Well, first of all, I met Christopher Ashley, who I'd worked with in the, the, uh, the play Jeffrey, and he lives close to me in the West Village. We saw each other on the train platform. Hi, Chris. What's going on? I'm directing the Rocky Horror Show. 
interesting. What are you doing right now? I'm going to go meet with some famous rock stars. I think it was David Bowie. He's going to go meet with his people. And Chris said, do you want to audition for it? And I said, well, Chris, you're obviously meeting with David Bowie's people. What's the <laughs> point? You're never going to cast me. Uh, I was also doing Scar and the Lion King at, at that time. <clears throat> and uh, finally, I got the call. My agents called and said they'd like to see you for the Rocky Horror Show. She said, there's a problem. You probably won't be able to get out of your contract for, uh, for from the Lion King. And I said, I don't care. You know, uh, when else will I be able to sing um, Sweet Transvestite ever again in my life? I was raised on the, the Roxy cast album of 1974. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when I was in undergraduate school, we, I'd memorized the album. I didn't have to work on the audition at all. I live in the West Village. I was able to, you know, stop you at some all- Pick up costumes easily. <laughs> on the way home at some all-night transvestite store. <laughs> you know, fishnets that fit me. Uh, our hair guy at the Lion King had a cunning pair of character pumps that fit me and so i wore some uh, old lab coat uh, that you know that was in the puppet shops kind of smeared with blood with a tie so i was sort of a mad doctor from the waist up and, and a beautiful beautiful you know gorgeous woman from the he has down. amazing legs uh, probably the best legs on broadway but uh, <laughs> so i went to show off and i felt kind of guilty my friend said you are not going to dress up for that audition and i said of course i'm going to i and uh it was a little scary i was a little embarrassed once i got there and i i felt guilty for wasting everyone time. dressed up for those auditions i heard a lot of people did to varying degrees. I was, I think, the most extreme on that particular day. Oh, my God. So I was, you know, I was a little scary. And uh, I just went to have a good time feeling guilty for wasting their time because I would never do the show. But, of course, the minute I opened my mouth, I thought they're going to have to deal with me because I'm fabulous. But it's one of those things where I had nothing to lose. I, there, I was, there was no air of desperation. I just went to have – here's me doing my little show for the next three minutes and thanks for letting me do it. And that, you know, I try to grasp that sensibility and hold on to it to every audition I go to because that was just invaluable. And, and, and what song did you do for the audition? Sweet Trans. They, they gave a specific music from the oh, show. So I did that. Sweet Trans of Why don't we listen to it from the cast album, though, years <laughs> later. <laughs> At least days later, if not. Days later, right. <laughs> from the Rocky Horror Show, Tom Hewitt, Sweet Transvestite as uh, Frank N. Furter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very curious. Certainly with Dracula, with 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 Rocky Horror, they're certainly iconic roles. Um, they bring out certain kinds of fans. And I'm wondering what, you know, certainly the Rocky Horror people, I mean, they're those people who've been doing it for years and they've lived their lives around it. Um, and with the Frank Wildhorn shows, they all bring up their groupies. Are you seeing that with Dracula? Are you getting the the recurrent visitors and starting oh, yes. to know the faces at the stage door? Mm-hmm. Last Saturday night, we, there was an event called The Gathering with uh, our fan base, the Order of Dracula, that you can join. If you go to, the, uh, uh, if you go to DraculaOnBroadway.com, you can join the Order of Dracula. What do you have to do to get in? Just, you know. <laughs> oh, just checking. <laughs> uh, what's your blood type? Uh, things like that. But you earn points. You know, if you do certain things like post the banner on an on on email or something like that, you earn certain points. And if you add a point, you get merchandise or tickets to the shows and it's things fun. like that. Yeah, it's it's really fun. fun. They're fun people, uh, too. So fun. Anyway, they had this thing. They had an event where they had dinner and sang some choreography, I mean, some karaoke, and came to our show. And then we had a, a question and answer period with them. And they could not have been sweeter. And it was the broadest demographic I have ever seen. Every age, all oh, these young God. people, like all kinds of stuff. All, yeah. it, it, there was no like no it wasn't over oh, there are going to be like gothy types not at all I, i've never seen a broader demographic in my life and they could not have been sweeter but is it a different dynamic melissa than say the people who might have come hanging around the stage door after say high society or my fair lady well yeah i guess you know high society even a more you know michelle legrand fans people who you know love jazz or um 
Yeah, I mean, it is different. Although I've always liked young people, you know, I've always had a, I get very excited when I see like moms and kids coming together or ladies coming together. I actually really just like people. So I don't really know if there's, definitely there are people who are a little, you know, more focused on being fans, you know, when right. they come to a Frank Wilder show, they're more aware that they're fans because it's, it's something they've now exercised. It's a, it's a routine they have, like they, they fixate, you know, but still after high society or after a more or after fair lady or whatever people, you know, the Sondheim celebration in Washington, you know, people who come are like obsessed with Sondheim. People come sometimes backstage and you just can sense that whatever just happened on stage, move them enough. They just want to see you one more time, yeah. you know. So I just like people and I'm happy to meet no matter, you know, what the fan, as long as it's the work and it's, you know, that excites them. I don't even mind if it's not the work, if it's the camaraderie of just being kind of fans, you know, and loving Wildhorn and getting to know each other at the stage doors. It's kind of right. fun that they're yeah, all together. Yeah. I'm just happy to see people having fun. I mean, look, we're not, this is what we're offering the world. We're offering the world a chance to tell stories, you know, we're personalities, we're offering them stories. So if they're making friends with each other or with us or with the play, whatever, a combination, as long as it's something positive in their lives. Sure. And of course, there's a real Frank Wildhorn, I guess we could say cult. A lot of people <laughs> really you know, are into Wildhorn's music, aren't they? Yeah. 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 Jekyll and Hyde shows like that. Yeah. Sure. yeah. Frank's music is very popular. Yeah. yeah. In, in, in Rocky Horror Show, there were quite a few you know, people would come to the audience uh, dressed in costume and they'd throw things on the stage. Any wild moments in the Dracula audience? Did anybody come dressed with fangs or anything like that? Or is that was more, more sedate? Well, you know, we... Uh, no, we get uh, fangs and capes. We get fangs and capes. You, you, you do. We totally sure we do. fangs and capes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we had an interesting phenomenon, though, with the, with, uh, the Rocky Horror Show because initially, of course, people were uh, familiar with the movie. The design of our show was very different from the movie, actually. It looked, it looked, the whole look of the show was quite a bit different. So initially, fans would come dressed as characters from the movie. But ours was a little updated and a little more hipper and groovier and less 1975. So the cutest thing happened. Our director noticed that a pair of girls who had dressed up in, like, maids' uniforms or whatever went into the bathroom at intermission and cut up their costumes to make them look more like <laughs> our costumes. Oh. So the designers felt that they need to incorporate a little bit more of the movie to not alienate completely the, the movie fans. So, That's interesting. Uh, but we developed our own fan. I mean, these people – the movie is very slow. Paced, which allows for uh, a great deal of audience uh, participation. You could speak paragraphs in between lines in the movies. Ours, of course, was much more fast-paced, so you had to be kind of on the ball if you wanted to participate vocally in the show. <laughs> so we developed our own stuff, you know, and they would be topical. Luke Perry was in the show for summer, so they yelled out 90210's junk during the Tony Awards. They, you know, they made it topical, seasonal, and you never knew. From day to day, you never knew. When uh, we had to sort of limit the participation, we eventually ended up selling participation bags because when uh, during the number there's a uh, light over at the Frankenstein place there's a it's it's raining so people would bring squirt guns squirting Alice Ripley and Jared Emick like inches from their face with their microphones on that wouldn't do Leah Delaria played Dr. Scott and traditionally when Dr. Scott's entrance you throw Scott tissue paper from into the audience and so oh, Leah came on stage and j rolls and rolls and rolls of toilet paper came onto the stage and they just didn't stop. Mm -hmm. And we tried to throw it back and they'd throw it back. It was it just turned <laughs> into absolute I would love mayhem. that. <laughs> no, right? I would love that. I oh don't my. know why. I would so just love that. I ended up having to be sort of 
uh, party host slash babysitter for the evening since I was I was given permission to have exchanges with the audience. The rest of the cast was pretty much told to say your lines so that the audience has an opportunity to respond. So it was very challenging for me. So what would you do to the audience? Would you sass them back? Would you throw things back? Occasionally, because you don't. Occasionally, you don't want to be too chastising. And the fun is, of course, to not respond so that your next line means it appears as though they are making you say your next line. So I chose often not to, but on occasion I would have to step in and try to at least sort of calm people down. <laughs> <laughs> so Wait. from the from from the ridiculous of of the Rocky Horror, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask Melissa. You've been do, you've done a number of shows off Broadway at Irish Rep. Most recently, mm-hmm. um, Finian's Rainbow. But also gave you a chance to do some dramatic work there, mm-hmm. uh, Importance of Being Earnest and Major Barbara. Major Barbara. Um, just wondering about the relationship with, with Irish Rep and the opportunities they've been able to give you. Oh, I, I love the Irish Rep. Um, they've, been, they've become to me sort of a, a symbol of, of things you don't want to lose track of in life. You know, if you have a base, even if it's, you know, especially if it's someplace cozy that you can trust. You know, in show business, you can always have your eye on the next big thing and the next big part and the next big opportunity and break, blah, blah, blah. I must I must never and I will never lose track of, you know, places where I feel uh, just really relaxed and have such a good time. The people at the Irish Rep are, are really good-natured, love, the, love theater, just for theater, and, you know, they pay you absolutely nothing. So um, they're not interested in money. They really are interested in the in the work. And so I go back there, and I always stumble on some great experience, you know. So there are some things that I've done to keep myself, um, to keep myself growing between, you know, bigger gestures, whether I'm trying to do a film or making a record or doing a Broadway show. Like, I, have to, I want to go back to the Irish rep. I did actually a straight play at the New Group this year, another place I'd love to work at more often because, again, it's a small theater. You know, you have to be careful because you will not make more than $300 a week. So if, if the show's a hit, it will run and run, and you will go absolutely <laughs> broke. But, I mean, that's the problem with these shows. They're, like, so often successful, and then you, like, you're, they keep running, sure, you know. Sure, because Dan and Lemon, the new was group show, runaway was, a, was hit a big too. hit. Yeah, just, it was so good, you know, and then everyone in it was so good. And Wally Shawn had written that play, you know, so long ago, but it became so topical again when the Iraq War started, and people were wondering a bit about America's attitudes about, war and power and so on. So I was excited to be a part of Finian's Rainbow, especially, and the record's going to come out November 22nd. Sarah Jessica Parker generously um, donated the money so a cast album could be made. And she came to the show, and she just... So again, the Irish rep sort of enchanted her with its little engine that could kind of quality. So the Irish rep is a very special place to me, and um, my own music as well. You know, I have a band. I work with my brother, and I'm I'm realizing that musical theater is something I can't control. As much as I love it, you can't make a hit show for yourself unless you're I don't know maybe a great writer or kind of a crazy diva. And I'm not. I just kind of wait. And between while you're waiting for the next big thing or hoping that a big break will come, you have to keep yourself creative and keep yourself alive. And yes, humble, but also. Um, bubbling over with ideas and small theaters do that and my own music does that my brother's a great writer I have a wonderful band I'm going to work on a new record soon with Michelle Legrand 
So I'm just trying to keep myself moving with small projects, even if they're not very lucrative. You know? Let's talk about your existing record, your CD, that came, I guess, about a year ago in 2003. Did yeah, it come one out? year old now. Yeah, Blue Like That. Now, your brother is credited on there. That's uh, Mike Erica. Yeah, right? Mike played guitar and did vocals. He wrote the opening, the, the opening song and uh, another song uh, that's, I think, track four. Track four, Keep It To Myself. It's all available on my website, Amazon's in the stores. It's on Capitol Records. It's, uh, I noticed it on great here a, a, a popular uh, Rodgers and Hart song. Yes, you, of course, would find the one <laughs> musical theater song. I was a bit naughty, and I didn't put enough musical theater on that CD, and I'll do a little more of that. But um, uh, So there is, yes, there is a Rodgers and Hart song. He was too good to me. Yes. <laughs> That's from Melissa's uh, CD, Blue Like That, a collection of about 12 songs. And uh, that one, he was too good to me, Rogers and Hart. When is your new CD coming out? Oh, I haven't even started working oh, on have, it yet. Are you going to have Broadway we're music We're brewing on it. That's a project with Michelle Legrand, actually. So it uh, would be his music. Amour. Um, Amour. Yeah. Finian's Rainbow is coming out. I've put out a few theater CDs. Sadie Thompson um, was a Vernon Duke musical. That's oh. actually um, a full original. It's the first time it's ever been recorded. Uh, June Havoc took over for Ethel Merman, and then there was a strike in the 40s, and it never got recorded. Hmm. So um, I did the first ever recording of that. You know, I've been trying to do th archival stuff as well, um, but uh, I haven't figured out how to incorporate theater music into what I would consider music I'd like to hang out with at home. I want to rearrange music a little more, and I've done some nice things with uh, accustomed to his face and uh, not while I'm around with guitar and percussion. So I believe I'll, I'm finding a way that that it's it would be unique. You can't just put a com compilation of theater songs done like a mm -hmm. theater album mm -hmm. and get a big label to do it. It's mm -hmm. just not going to happen. Now, he's talking about music you hang out with at home. What, what do you listen to at home? Well, I love Diana Reeves and I love Cassandra mm -hmm. Wilson. Mm -hmm. I'm a real sucker for a real great torch singer who's unusual. And um, I don't like being sung at. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't like anything abrasive or loud when I'm home. I like things that are groovy and understated and smart and very, very musical with world-class musicians, jazz people. And you got to be very – I have to learn slowly if I'm going to – I mean the people on my record are world-class musicians in that medium. So I'm tiptoeing towards – towards. you need to learn before you ask people to play for you. you. You need to give them a lot of respect. It's another world. It's like being in Japan. It's like another language, you know. And, Tom, if yeah. I looked at your CD collection, what would I find? You know, you'd find some Aaliyah Delaria, as a matter of fact, currently. Mm -hmm. I recently saw her at Birdland and had never – I'd heard her on the radio a couple of times, but I'd never seen her perform live. She is remarkable. She's she, very good. She says, uh, she says, I'm not just a girl singer. I'm a musician. That's and right. And it's she true, is. man. She is a musician. Well, you were telling us a story before we got on the air that when you were touring and you're in town, you had oh. a particular CD oh in, in your clock radio. <laughs> so let's hear it. Melissa Errico showed up for a reading of Dracula the Musical, and I've never really had this uh, experience before. I know and love her husband, Patrick, and he knows me, so I think he'll take this for the way it's meant. But I just fell in love with her immediately. I, I never, I was like, a, my jaw sort of dropped a little bit. And um, I snagged a copy of her CD, and I would put it in the hotel alarms <laughs> clocks, you know, so I would wake up every morning, I would say for a good month. To uh, that that very album with Melissa Erico, oh, gradually grew uh, to love her uh, 
Michael Alex on the road. And I'm so happy to be on the stage with her right now. <laughs> yeah, we're a good team. We're good. We ta- yeah, we're, we're good together. We're lucky. Yeah. You're, you're married, Melissa, to Patrick McEnroe, the yes. tennis player and the sportscaster. Yep, Davis, U.S. Davis Cup captain and uh, Olympic captain. He's a really good coach. I love. He's very, very excited to have been the Davis Cup captain. You know, for I think four years now. He's hired again, and we're in the finals, which is December sixth. Now, basically, you're both performers. He performs as an athlete. In tennis, you perform on the stage. Do you, as a performer, as, a, as an actress, as a singer, can you learn from him, his experiences? Absolutely. I was playing tennis with him um, uh, last weekend, and he said something to me. He said, relax, you'll have more power. He said, follow through. He said, don't run to the ball, let it come to you. Um, he says all these really fascinating things, and they really, they're like, metaf- they're, the metaphors are everywhere. It's like the Zen master of tennis, you know? Mm-hmm. And also on just a daily basis, he understands rejection, he understands frustration. Nobody loses more than tennis players, and nobody feels as alone as, you know, as much as an actor and a tennis player, they're in front of the world alone on a court and they can't talk to anyone. You really have to rely on your own mind and be resilient when you've had a setback. And so he's been incredible. I don't think I'd actually turn out as well if I didn't meet him. I think I might become a crazy woman. (laughs) So really lucky. Tom might be like, and my crazy Melissa friend. (laughs) So now I'm sort of probably a fairly acceptable person because my husband is is a great uh, example to me, really. Have you been able to impart any knowledge, any wisdom to him? To him? <laughs> no, although he didn't even know who Oscar Wilde was when I met him, oh, or Shaw, for that matter. Now he just he's a, disgusted with himself because, of course, once you know, you just it's everywhere and you feel like a dork. But so yeah, I think it's been exciting. He actually the first time I took him to a play was Zold, Zoe Caldwell in Master Class, and when the uh, usher walked us to our seats, he tipped the usher. <laughs> I think you do that at sporting games. I know you do it in like parking garage. Mm-hmm. And I was so <laughs> I was mortified. I said, actually, what I said was, "This isn't a parking garage." We were Bless just him. dating, and he gave him money to take us to our seat. <laughs> so, anyway, things have changed. He's actually uh, like a theater fan now. I mean, he loves going oh, to plays. He's yeah. always online. He, you he's know, very supportive of all of us. He's like we're there for many of the technical rehearsals. <laughs> Sort of, you know, Patrick's always lurking around. It's yeah. always great to see him. He's like, he watches a yellow ball go back and forth all day. I mean, let's face it. He loves coming to Dracula and watching the same stuff over and, and over again. And watching Tom go back, back and, forth. and forth. But I mean, he, look, it's not that, you know, it's just bing bong, bing bong, watching this ball. And then he comes and watches Dracula. It's over 40-something times he's seen me in it. And he's interested in, oh, I noticed Tom did something different or he didn't get his fangs and or this thing happened or Lucy's dress got stuck or, I mean, he notices the little things because that's... The attention to detail. So he's been a nice, you know, energy for the whole cast. He's supportive. You know. How did the two of you meet? An actress and a tennis player. How, how did you meet? I met him in nursery school. He was my older brother's really? best friend. We wow. all grew up together. Yeah, I am learning so much about you. Didn't you know today. that? Really? No. I know you didn't know I was a crazy Same. train lady, and now the oh, you didn't know I knew Patrick since I was a kid. No, that's awesome. Oh my god, the photos! You got to go on my website. <laughs> 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 Hmm. Well, Patrick, Patrick, I'm looking at Melissa and Patrick, <laughs> Patrick in my mind. Melissa, Eric, O, and Tom Hewitt, both currently appearing at the Belasco Theater. One final question before we wrap. The Belasco is haunted, I understand. The ghost of Belasco and his mistress haunt the theater. Is that true? Mm. It kind of depends on who you talk to, who, who in fact haunts uh-huh. the uh, 
the uh, Belasco Theater. I haven't seen any specific specters, but I have spent some time by myself in the balcony and the mezzanine, and there's definitely some creepitude going on. There's something going on in that theater. <laughs> that would be creepitude. Creepitude. Well, you have not yet been in the theater for Halloween, and Halloween is happening this weekend, so oh, who knows? This is going to be fun. <laughs> <It's> gonna <beware>. <laughs> I am going to be so into it. Oh, man. <gasps> yeah. Well, Tom and Melissa, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage. It's Center. a great pleasure. Thank thanks. You. This is fun. I'm Howard Sherman from the American Theater Wing, reminding everyone that all of the Downstage Center interviews, as well as the American Theater Wing's other media projects, are available as free on-demand audio and video from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And I'm John von Susten for XM28 on Broadway. That's a wrap, and thank you.